Well, it is the second Sunday of Lent. We are going to, as I mentioned last week, be camping out in the Gospel of John in the coming weeks. Before we get there, you know, there was a common theme in my childhood, and I may have mentioned this at times before, but growing up with three older brothers, there, there are 13 years that separate me as the youngest from my oldest brother. And growing up with three older brothers, I so desperately wanted to escape childhood because I saw what my brothers were getting to do. I wanted to bridge that gap of years um, and, and just have the ability to do whatever they were doing. I saw what they had and I wanted it. I used to love going to my brother's basketball games and I would keep my eyes locked on my brother the entire game and then after the game I'd go down on the court and sort of mentally put myself into the game that I had just watched. I wanted to do whatever they were doing. I wanted to play basketball with them in, their, in the street with their friends, even though obviously as a seven-year-old I couldn't hang. I mean, the ball was the, half the size of my tiny seven-year-old frame, and a seven-year-old playing basketball with high schoolers just is not a great idea. I wanted to go with my brother when he went over to his girlfriend's house, which actually occasionally I got to do, but in hindsight, I realized that was a on the part of my parents to try to keep a high school boy on the straight and narrow. And it, I think it worked. Some of you probably have similar experiences. We, we expend a lot of energy as children longing for the day that we're no longer children. In elementary school, we can't wait to get to junior high. As adolescents, we're longing to get to high school, to get the driver's license, and so on and so forth. And as young adults, of course, you want to get to adulthood when maybe you will earn some respect and start a career, and if you're lucky, even gain some security and a little bit of wealth. And at that point, we can once and for all put childish things behind us. And it can be easy for our whole lives to become this journey of trying to abandon childhood. I think of Cora, our, our four-year-old, who thinks she's too big for naps. She thinks she's a big kid now because she's four, and that must mean no naps. And I want to do everything I can to stare into her eyes and say, do you realize what you've done? <laughs> you will look back on this and long for the day when you can sleep at any time you want and people are happy that you are sleeping. But we want to get past that, right? We, we want to grow in wisdom and power to gain independence and control over our lives. But in the story we're going to read this morning in John, Jesus is going to, to, to explain that the kingdom of God is different. It's not this journey of progressing beyond that childlike dependence, but it's actually the opposite. In fact, entrance into the kingdom requires that we return to that childlike state of dependence that we so eagerly left, that we start over, that we become small and vulnerable once again. So we're calling this Lenten series Walking with Jesus. Last week, of course, we focused on the temptation story of Christ in Matthew chapter 4. But for the rest of the season, we are going to be camping out in the Gospel of John, reading stories of individuals who encountered Jesus. John is providing sort of these profiles of a disciple, and they're individuals who are quite different. And 
My hope is that during this series, we might discern some ways that their encounters might inform our encounters. So today we're going to be reading a section that contains probably the most popular sentence in our Bible. John chapter 3, you know the verse I'm referencing probably, but we're going to begin back in verse 1. John chapter 3, verse 1, this is what we read. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. So we'll pause here real quick because I just can't help myself. We are introduced here to one of the few characters in John's story that the gospel author actually names, a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Now, why does John provide this man's name while so many other characters remain nameless? A couple of possibilities. Perhaps it's because he was a prominent religious leader, and so many folks, including maybe John's audience, would have known who Nicodemus was. And so there's this personal connection that maybe John is making for his audience. Or or maybe it's simply for future reference. Because in John's gospel, we're actually going to encounter this man a couple of other times. He's going to be highlighted in the story. And so perhaps his name is included here from the beginning so that later in the story, the audience can go, oh yeah, that's who we're talking about now. That this man that we were introduced to at the beginning of the story. Either way, this is Nicodemus. And there are two fairly important things that we learn about him from the first couple of verses of this chapter. Two things that may very well be connected to one another. First, we learn he's a Pharisee, a man of the Pharisees. Now, we often hear that term thrown around in Christian circles as a pejorative title whenever somebody is doing something that we don't particularly like. Well, they're a hypocrite. They're a Pharisee. They have a Pharisaical approach to the faith. And that, that's not super helpful for anyone, I don't think. And I, I think an added um, negative aspect of that is that it sort of colors how we come to understand these stories of Jesus and his interaction with this group of religious leaders. But nonetheless, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. These are essentially the religiously elite in Israel, especially in the city of Jerusalem. They were the keepers of the Torah, of the law. They were the authority when it came to issues of purity or things like tithing or religious festivals like the Passover. They knew the law. They knew it inside and out, and they were extremely committed to it. And so Nicodemus is elite religiously. He's politically powerful and quite possibly has... A little bit, at least, a little bit of wealth. And we're told here, the second thing, that this man of the Pharisees, Nicodemus, comes to Jesus, and he comes to Jesus at night. And I think this is important. There are some proposals about why the time of day is included in the story. Is it important, or is it just coincidence? Nicodemus naturally comes at night because he was working all day. It's the only opportunity he has. If you have a job where you don't have a lot of flexibility, you're expected to be in the office from 9 to 5, you understand Nicodemus's plight. He comes to Jesus at night because he was working. Furthermore, it was 
pretty common at this time, unsurprisingly, for Jewish teachers who had to work to support themselves to do all of their study at night. Not much has changed in that regard. If you're in school or were in school and you worked to pay for school and support yourself and maybe a family, you understand that you have to study whenever you have time, and oftentimes that means you're studying in the middle of the night. But I think there's more to it than that. It seems that in the story world that John is developing here, that this detail is more significant than mere happenstance. Surely John is including this detail intentionally to add another level of meaning to this story, and I think the context bears that out. He most likely comes to Jesus, I think, to avoid being seen. In the ancient world, even 150 years ago, before the light bulb existed, nighttime, that's the opportunity for society's unsavory or shameful behavior to take place because it can go undetected. Night, under the cover of the dark, is the time for secrecy. And although now bright LED lights have changed that to a certain extent, it's still true to some degree. So why did Nicodemus come at night? I think it's likely that he comes to Jesus at night because he doesn't want his peers or maybe his superiors to know what he's up to. So wherever Nicodemus is on this spectrum of belief, and I think the story is going to inform us that he is somewhere on that spectrum of belief, but at this point, John chapter 3, his faith is not public. He seems to be maybe a secret believer in Jesus, but not yet a public follower of Jesus. He is in process, and he's afraid of going public, as the newsboys encouraged us to do in 1994. He's afraid of going public with his faith, lest something drastic happen, like get kicked out of the synagogue. Well, let's continue. We, we've made it through one and a half verses, so let's continue in verse two. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Now, Jesus is going to affirm this belief or this intrigue that Nicodemus has or his correct observation about Christ's identity. We, we know that you must be from God because the things that you're doing have no other explanation. But Jesus recognizes that Nicodemus is in the process. He's in the process of growing in his understanding of who he is and growing in maybe his willingness to follow Jesus. And Jesus takes this opportunity to sort of nudge Nicodemus in that direction, to encourage him to take the next step in faith. Because there's more to following Jesus than simple amazement at who he is or what he has done. Just by, by the end of John's story, we're going to see that Nicodemus apparently gets to the point of becoming a public disciple, but he's not quite there yet. 
Verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus recognizes that Nicodemus is in process, that he's somewhere on that spectrum of belief. But, but he goes on to nudge him and says, do you, do you want to see the kingdom of God? I mean, really see it and know it and understand what it's about? And it's important to remember when we talk about the kingdom that this is not a reference to some completely ethereal reality that's devoid or separate from the earth. The kingdom of God is, is simply the area in which God reigns, the place in which God reigns and allows his will to be accomplished, even now in the world we inhabit. And Jesus affirms his belief. Yes, you believe that I'm from God, but what does that really mean for you, Nicodemus? Jesus is inviting him into a deeper level of recognizing the identity of this king who comes from God. And he says, if you want to truly see the kingdom of God, there's something that's required, and that is that you would be born again. Otherwise, you can be intrigued. You, you can be amazed, but you won't adequately understand what this means for you today. You, you can't really understand the nature of the kingdom unless something dramatic has taken place. And what needs to take place? Well, it's no less than new birth. You enter the kingdom as a, a baby enters this world, small and vulnerable. You must be born again, he says. This is a dramatic image. This is one of the places where we get that language you've probably heard of, being a born-again Christian, <clears throat> indicating that something radical has taken place. So radical, in fact, that Nicodemus, when he hears it, protests. How is an old man supposed to be born again? And he actually gets a little graphic. He says, is a man supposed to enter again into his mother's womb? That, that's ridiculous. You're speaking nonsense, Jesus. Maybe I misjudged your wisdom. Maybe I misjudged the fact that I thought you were from God. Jesus says, don't be shocked. You were born in the flesh. Now have a spiritual birth. Be born of water and the spirit. Born of water and the spirit. Now, deciphering exactly what Jesus is talking about here has troubled scholars for centuries and we could go down several different paths of what this might mean. In my view, I think it's likely that it's at least connected in some way 
to a new spiritual birth of faith that is confirmed and enacted through baptism. The language here seems to indicate that there's some connection to what we're reading with baptism. Nicodemus has showed that he's interested in this man Jesus and maybe even that he does believe that he is from God himself, but at some point he will need to take an additional step a public social crossing of sorts, or a a transfer of membership from one community to another. Jesus suggested it's not enough to simply be intrigued, but I want you to publicly identify with me to take up your cross and to follow me. And I'll actually take a moment to address this in our context. I, I understand that Not everybody in this room would claim to be a follower of Jesus. I think in a group this size, statistically speaking, there are some who either may have no interest um, or maybe you would find yourself in a similar position to Nicodemus today. Intrigued, interested, seeking, but maybe not yet at the point of taking that step of faith to publicly identify with Jesus Christ and follow him. And if, if you find yourself in that position, first of all, I, I would like to say that we're glad that you're here, and we hope that you find this to be a safe place to explore and to learn and to absorb and to encounter Jesus. But, but I'll just put all my chips on the table, um, which I don't know what that reference means, but <laughs> I, I'll put all my chips on the table at... at At some point, I do hope that you would get to the place where you're willing to take that step. That's my desire for you. And if you are at that point where you are ready to take that step of faith, I'd love to, to talk with you more about that. And we actually have a baptism coming up later this spring. We We don't have the exact date nailed down yet as we're sort of waiting to see what the timeline is going to be for this space next door. Um, But we invite you, if you're ready to make that public declaration of allegiance, ready for birth of water and the spirit to identify with the community gathered around Christ, we invite you. Jesus understands that Nicodemus is in process And I think it probably goes without saying that every one of us in this room are in process. Wherever you are in that process, on that spectrum of belief, we invite you to continue seeking. Let's continue reading in verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? I mean... It was pretty confusing what he was talking about. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Because of God's great love for the world, he sent Christ that whoever believes in him identifies with him. So there are these different levels of belief, of course. Whoever follows him and experiences this new birth from him will have an everlasting life. God sent Christ not to condemn the world, but to save the world. To save the world. And not just individuals to a personal salvation, but to rescue and redeem and to save the entire cosmos. But that salvation is a salvation that does include individuals. Like Nicodemus. Like these other characters we're going to be introduced to and observe in the coming weeks. Individuals like you and like me. So keep in mind, Nicodemus is a very religious man. He's achieved a lot. He has a a lot of spiritual credibility. He's a member of the elite, ruling religious group of his day. He's beginning to believe in Jesus or is, at the very least, intrigued by him, drawn to him in some way. And he already considers himself to be a child of God and a child of Abraham and If we fast forward to John chapter 8, and this was one of the the big tensions that the Pharisees have with with Jesus, is that Jesus says, well, no, you, you think you're a child of God and of Abraham, but not quite, because you need to be reborn. Because your religious status, your wisdom, your achievement, none of that's going to do anything for you. None of that really means anything. No, you need to re-enter the world. You need to return to that state of childlike dependence and weakness and vulnerability. You need to be saved too, Nicodemus, even if that is a salvation from your sense of self-sufficiency. I think that's something we can, many of us can probably identify with. Those who, maybe it seems like there's, there's nothing to be saved from indication that maybe it is that sense of self-sufficiency like Nicodemus elite religious man there was still a need he had Derek Vreeland who's a pastor here in Missouri in a book he wrote suggests that well we've advanced a lot in late modernism we've made a lot of achievements and progress we haven't really advanced beyond this crippling reality self-sufficiency. He wrote this in that book entitled, By the Way. He said, the besetting sin of our secular age is the sin of self-sufficiency. With God obscured from view, modern secular people are left with little more than than human-generated attempts to change society and perhaps to change themselves. The besetting sin of our generation, self-sufficiency, And he went on to talk about the fact that followers of Jesus who drink deeply from that well of self-sufficiency, which I think is a great challenge for many of us, will pay lip service to the God of Christian worship and, and work at change, but it's change that is fueled by willpower rather than 
returning to childlikeness. He says we should certainly put forth effort in following Jesus, but it's not human-generated hard work where our soul dependence is on the energy that we can muster up. Jesus offers us a better way forward. And it's a way that takes us back to weakness, a way that takes us back to vulnerability, that we might enter like a baby enters this world with nothing to offer, nothing to offer but ourselves. And I think this is one of our important takeaways during this season of Lent. You know, we started this season a week and a half ago on Ash Wednesday, and we did so by simply reminding ourselves of our mortality. And that's not a fun reminder, right? That takes us into a dark season, but where we confront our sense of self-sufficiency or our illusions of self-sufficiency, we confront that with the reality of our limitations, our mortality, our weakness. And it's only from that place of vulnerability and weakness that we can enter the kingdom of God like a newborn baby. And it's only in that place of weakness and vulnerability that we understand our need for the salvation that Jesus offers. I think in part Nicodemus can't quite connect the dots. As Jesus says, doesn't understand even the things he's teaching because he hasn't yet returned to that place of vulnerability and weakness. He thinks it's in his achievement what he can offer, what he brings to the table, his wisdom and enlightenment. And Jesus says, no, you need to back up. No, you need to start again. So John is providing for us several paths to discipleship. Paths of walking with Jesus, these profiles of disciples. Nicodemus is one of those that I think provides a great challenge for us. Next week, we'll consider another one. But for today, as we reflect on this man, as we think about Nicodemus's interaction with Jesus and the process he is in, by the end of the story, again, he is a public follower of Jesus, it seems. I think there are some really important challenges for us to take away in regard to that sense of self-sufficiency. But I also want to leave us with a word of comfort And it's actually counterintuitive. It is comfort that is found in our insufficiency. Because it's not your sufficiency. It's not your achievement or your goodness or your worthiness that makes you a child of God, that makes you a recipient of salvation. It is God's love for you. Because of God's great love for the world, he sent Christ. Not to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. It's not about what you bring to the table. The pressure is not on you to figure out your salvation. Christ is offering it for you. It is his love for you. It is his love for the entire cosmos that rescues us from the powers of sin and from ourselves. Amen. Would you stand today? We are going to gather around the table of our Lord to respond to what we've read in the Gospels today, to 
respond to hopefully what the Spirit of God is doing in our hearts and in our minds this morning. We're going to make two lines down the center aisle. You'll come forward. There will be somebody here waiting with the elements, and the words will be spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. It's not what you can do, what you can earn, what you can achieve. It is a gift of God. To receive the gift, we, we return to that childlike state of dependence and offer ourselves before the God of the universe with nothing to offer. Accept that. Accept us in our weakness, our vulnerability, our limitations. So almighty God, you know that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. Keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls, that we may be defended from all adversities that may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts that may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Would you join us at the table today?